The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. I'm going to start with a story that has uh, nothing to do with the lesson, but I thought maybe you could learn from it like I did. Uh, because it was an interesting one. Uh, We had some appliance issues this week, and so we had to get a a washer and dryer, along with, uh, later on, a few days later, a dishwasher. Uh, So uh, I don't find myself to be very handy, but I think, I figure, you know, I'm good enough. I've done this before. I can hook a washer up, right? It's no big deal. Uh, So we get the washer, I get it all put in there. You know, I I gotta have these things done because uh, I leave for Rwanda tomorrow and my wife has this checklist and I'm not leaving the country unless I check, because she loves lists, I check these boxes for her, you know? And so I get the washer in, I'm good. You know, I think everything's fine. She's all excited, throws a load in. I'm also uh, grilling chicken that night and I'm just multitasking, feeling good about myself. And uh, back and forth, you know, of course, wash my hands every time. But uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm grilling the chicken and I'm in the kitchen and then I hear this noise and I'm thinking, ah, oh, this... New washer sounds louder than the old washer. I'm not sure what's, what's wrong with this thing. But I finally think, oh, maybe I should go check it out. So I peek around the corner to find in my laundry room uh, just a jet of water shooting out of the back of the washer against the wall. And uh, my wife had left to go pick up my daughter at track practice. And, uh, you know, I get the wet dry back out and try to get it cleaned up before she got home, but it didn't work. And, uh, and so tested the wet dry vac ability and the uh, capacity there and got it all cleaned up. And turns out I didn't actually put the, uh, you know, the hose that catches the water and goes into your wall. <laughs> details, just details. <laughs> I'm not very good at them. So uh, anyway, it is working now. Got it all cleaned up. And uh, in case any of you are having a week like that, I can empathize with you, so uh, it's good stuff. But we're in Genesis 26 this morning. Genesis 26 is where we're at, um, continuing in our study in the life of Abraham. Two weeks ago, uh, I was able to be up here. We talked about God's providence, how God used uh, Abraham's servant to find Rebecca a wife, and just how God connected all these dots to the point that they just divinely uh, the servant met her at the well and all these things worked out. Last week, Chase shared with us a a great sermon on uh, just the different things, but one that caught my attention was the cloud of witnesses, the the witnesses that he focused on fixing their gaze upon God and not only from scripture, but I love the list that he went through of people that have from TBC, longtime people in TBC that have gone before us as faithful servants, fixing their gaze upon God. And today we're kind of looking at a passage that uh, in some ways it's, it's good, some ways it's tough, and, and the first part is a little difficult. We, we see Isaac as this young man who's the son of Father Abraham, you know, and we see him promise this blessing, but things aren't going so well. Um, it's not all smelling like roses for him, and if you look at verse one to five, we see that famine is everywhere in the land. Look at verse one. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. 
Sojourn in this land and I will be with you and will bless you for to you and your offspring, I will give all these lands and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and give to your offspring all these lands and in your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes and my laws. So initially, we see this famine going on. And as you can see in this passage, Abraham, this was nothing new to Isaac because Abraham had been through this as well. But Abraham, when he responded to the famine, he went to Egypt. Just a natural place for them to go at that time that had the things that they needed to get through the famine. But in this instance, Isaac's natural inclination would be to follow his father. But here we see him actually uh, being called by God not to go there, but to the, go to the country where he was born in Gerar. So we see not a famine, but then God's promise to provide. But then also we see an instance where Isaac feared for his life in verse six. Isaac settled in Gerar when the men of the place asked him about his wife. He said, she is my sister. For he feared to say my wife, thinking lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebecca, because she was attractive in appearance. Which is the second time we've seen in scripture that it's mentioned that she was attractive. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, what is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people saying, whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. If you've been with us in this study, you think it's like deja vu here, right? Isaac is committing the same sin that his dad had committed years earlier, claiming that his wife was his sister. You think about maybe he, I don't know how old he was at that time. You're thinking that didn't work out well from that time. What's interesting as well is it's the same name of the king. It's the same name, but some scholars in looking into this is, you know, you don't see the author pointing anything out that says, hey, we've been through this before, right? Hello, this didn't work for your dad. So there's some agreement that it must be, Abimelech must be a kingly name, whether it's passed down, but either way, it's a father and a son experience the same thing. It's a king and his people experiencing the same thing and it's sin against God, a lack of trust. It's interesting for us to think about what happens when we face fear, anxiety, worry, even deep annoyance and that, that just weighs heavy on us and what our reactions are. Because we get on Isaac's case, when we get on Abraham's case, well, really, you're gonna do this? But in reality, when we feel pressures, and especially to what he's feeling, the fear for his own life, for us to see that in this scripture, he reacted in a way that didn't honor God. So it's interesting, though, how Abimelech, you look in the scripture, how did he know that Isaac and Rebekah were married? Now in the passage, you can see here, he looked out a window, verse eight, and he saw Isaac laughing. What did Isaac's name mean? Does anybody know? Laughter. So if you really want to read it correctly, it was Isaac was Isaacing. 
is really what he was doing, right? With Rebecca, his wife. And there's lots of different opinions on what was happening there. Or was it an intimate connection or just them talking? But you have to understand in this culture is different. You know, Danny's got his arm around his wife right now, right? In that culture, that's not happening in public. Even talking with one another and conversing with one another in public as a husband or as a husband and wife was, was really frowned upon. It, wasn't, it just didn't happen. So for them to be laughing and, and kind of joking together, there was easy dots that he connected that really for us wouldn't be connected in our culture. So he perceived that they were husband and wife and he, he uh, confronts them. We see that Verse 11, that Isaac's feeble faith put his wife in harm's way, but it took a pagan king to protect her. And that's not the first time or the only time we're gonna see that it took a pagan king or a pagan ruler to actually watch out for God's people. It's really interesting how God's providence works. That sometimes it takes pagan or even wicked people to look out for God's people. I've experienced this a little bit in my life, nothing to the extent of Isaac, but I remember, you know, playing basketball, it's my favorite thing to do outside of hanging out with my family, but I love to play basketball, and when, I don't know about you, but when you're in competition, when I'm in competition, it brings out some things in me maybe that aren't so good, all right? I know Jerry Jones, he's back there nodding his head with me, Uh, but the reality is there's things that in my competitive nature that I'll say that I would never say just in general in public consumption or even to a friend. There's been many times that I've been playing with a guy that didn't really, I didn't think he was a believer that has said to me, hey, Tim, that's not who you are. I mean, he's saying everything, you know, under the sun and more, right? But he's like saying, hey, chill out, man, that's not who you are. And in this situation, on a much bigger scale, you see this pagan king saying, hey, 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 hold on a second here. What is going on, Isaac? What are you doing? And you see Isaac's selfish focus, uh, not just back in verse uh, in seven, or yeah, right there in seven, lest the men in the place should kill me. But you also see it again in verse nine, where he says, lest I die because of her. So it wasn't like he's taking this chivalrous approach and saying, I'm gonna protect my wife. You know, I'm going to say you're my sister. But he's like, it's all about him at this moment, right? It's all about him and looking out for himself. What's great is verse 12 to 14. Follows up this sin with the reality that God still uses a messed up man. That God still uses and even blesses somebody who fails in this way. Look at verse 12. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so the Philistines envied him. So here he is, not trusting God, disobeying God, not trusting him, but even still, God blessed him. Even in his sin, beyond his sin, God gave him this blessing based on the covenant with his father, Abraham. Got to really focus maybe on that, that verse that talks about a hundredfold in that year. To have a hundredfold of anything in that year of famine was just unreal. Even in a, a non-famine time of uh, history, a hundredfold in a year in this time would have been crazy. But then to have that in a famine just shows God's hand of blessing. Verse 13 
It's an interesting thing. And the next section deals with fighting over resources. You see that they envied him at the end of verse 15. Then it goes in all the way to 22. There's this conflict that arises. But I want you to see something very clearly that Isaac was called to obey, but his obedience brought conflict. Oftentimes we're called to obey, but we're called to obey in the face of certain problems and certain pushback. It's important for us not to confuse the lack of conflict in our lives with being fully obedient to God. Some of you long for the days where things are going well, right? If we could just get a day where things go smoothly, right? We don't get a complaint from somebody or we don't, you know, face this, you know, argument again or whatever it is that you may be even standing up for in your faith. And we long for days where it's just maybe smooth and there's not problems, there's not difficulty. But the reality is when we obey, it goes counter to what the world says and what this culture says. And so obedience for us often can bring conflict as well. Oswald Chambers says, let the consequences of your obedience be left up to God. And even when Jesus is talking with his disciples, there's plenty of opportunity. He says, you will be persecuted. You will suffer pain. You will, there will be sorrow. And so even as Isaac obeys, he sees conflict. There's fighting over sources of water, especially because of this famine. So the Philistines, they had filled in the wells that Isaac's dad had dug, and they filled them in, and then Isaac goes and and he digs new ones, and in 15 to 22, you can see it in there where basically they're arguing, no, this is our land, get lost. He moves along. No, he digs another one, this is our land, move along, to the point he finally digs again, and he's able to keep that well. But you have to relate a little bit to the Philistines here. The Philistines are watching a guy be successful in the year, this year of famine, watching him be successful and have all these crops and, and all this livestock and everything that made you rich, descendants and all this, and they're watching it. Man, this is dry for us. We're getting nothing. I don't know about you, but sometimes I can relate to this with these guys, the Philistines. Seeing someone else prosper while you're in the middle of a storm. You ever hear the news of something great happening to a friend when things are absolutely horrible for you? Now, you may not think this, but in that moment, do you, do you ever wish that something, not tragic, right, but something might happen to them? Maybe uh, like their hair falling out overnight, something like that, or you know, they're on Facebook Live and their fake eyelashes fall off. Or maybe they're bragging about the brand new car they had and their, their son decides to throw up, you know, right? In the middle of the brand new car. And you've never thought that about people, right? But in this instance, the Philistines are envious. They're jealous. They're looking at him saying, everything's working out for you. And what do they do? They cause problems and they fight and they argue. So it's important for us to see this, that God's providence is still at work, even in this conflict that he faces, though. Look at verse 23. And from there he went up to Beersheba. And the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. 
for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. And Abimelech went to him from Gerar with Ahuzath, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army. Isaac said to them, why have you come to me saying that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we see God's providence at work in this instance of providing an opportunity for Isaac to thrive. Two weeks ago, we looked at that in the case of finding Rebekah from the servant. Nahum Sarna says, nothing is more characteristic of a biblical man than a profound and pervasive conviction about the role of divine providence in everyday human affairs. And Kent Hughes goes on to say, when God's children truly believe that God is with them, a deepening of both faith and obedience takes place. See, God declares who he is to Isaac. He helps him see that he is the great God. And it made me think about ways that maybe I experience this, where I see God in amazing ways, maybe beyond the everyday, uh, just you know, schedule and things that I do where sometimes I, I get away. And that's why I brought this bucket up. I thought about the beach. And I grew up going to the beach or the Jersey Shore, not the ghetto Jersey Shore, but the, you know, the, well, it's kind of is, but it was a great time for me uh, growing up on the boardwalk, the rides, the smells, all these things, you know, going, building sandcastles. It made me think about the beach, how when I go there and encounter God and I see the ocean that seems to go on forever, I hear the waves and I see nature in, in a different light that I just experience the presence of God and who he is in a different way. And so when, when relating to this, uh, I think I have a few pictures, you know, just for your humor. Uh, top right is me and my sisters and my brother. That was back when I was still trying to figure out if I liked my parents or not, so kind of half smiling a little bit. But we love the beach growing up. Pass it down to my kids, even they got a little bucket in their hand. And top left, you can see Owen. That was back when we were fostering Owen and we couldn't post any pictures of his face. So he got the picture of the bucket on his head, which was a lot of things in front of his face during that time. But we find a great joy in going to the beach and experiencing God's creation, experiencing the power of the ocean and just seeing this greatness of God firsthand. And A.W. Tozer, he puts it way better than I could ever do. He said, we should never think of God as being spatially near or remote. For he is not here or there, but carries here and there in his heart. Space is not infinite, as some have thought. Only God is infinite. And in his infinitude, he swallows up all space. Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? He fills heaven and earth as the ocean fills the bucket that is submerged in it. And as the ocean surrounds the bucket, so does God, the universe he fills. The heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. God is not contained. He contains. To further this point, Jeremiah 23, 23 and 24 says, Am I a God at hand, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can a man hide himself in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do I not fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord? In addition, check out Psalm 139, 9 to 10. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. So we see in this passage that God reminds him over and over again of the covenant 
with his father Abraham that has passed down to Isaac that he is with him, that he is in control, that he has it, that he has it under control no matter what he's facing. So we've observed the basic story of God's presence with Isaac, but I'd like us to go just a little deeper and look at three declarations of God's presence, three parallel declarations, and they're all dealing with time. The first one is future. God started by giving him a hope for the future. You see, the present was tough. The present was difficult. Go back to verse three, or even back to one, the famine in the land. Verse three, though, he says, sojourn in this land, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. This is in the middle of the famine. This is in the middle of difficulty, struggle, pain, death around him. Yet he says, I'm going to be with you, I will provide for you, because this is not a new covenant. It was passed down through Abraham, even in verse five it says, because Abraham obeyed my voice, this is passed down to him. God gave him a blessing in the middle of the famine, and then not only does he go from his future, but he also now goes back to his present. Verse 24, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father, fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for you, my servant, Abraham's sake. And so for us, we can see in the present, he says, not only I blessed your father in the past, but I will now bless you. And past faithfulness often points us to present peace. And so then, you know what he does? He goes into the past a little bit more. Verse 26 to 28 And in 26 to 28 that we just read, it talks about God's presence, not only there with him at the time, not only in the future, but also in his past. And actually he uses wicked people or pagan people to point it out. If you look at verse 28, look at what he says. Something you could underline, highlight, whatever you do in your Bible would be great. They said, we see, these are the people that came to visit. The Philistines came to see him to have a covenant together. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. That's such a powerful statement. We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. They didn't say we see plainly that you're amazing, Isaac. We see plainly that you're just full of obedience. We see plainly that you watch out for your wife, right? They didn't say that. They said, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you, that God is with you. Made me think about my own life, and maybe you can consider this as well. What do people see when they look at me and my family? What do people see when they look at you and your family? Can they see plainly that God is with you? Can they see, they see plainly that you are somebody who walks with God, not a perfect person, somebody who messes up and sins, but somebody who is deeply in love with God? How about when you interact with your family, your classmates, maybe your friends, your coworkers, in the community? What do they see? But instead, do they see chaos? Do they see fear? Do they see uncertainty, stress, busyness, blindly following this absurd cultural norm of just being busy all the time? and never having any time as a family to be together. Is that what the world sees of you? 
Is that what the world sees of your family? Or do they see somebody who relies on a heavenly father? They see somebody who trusts in the, in the sacrifice of the son on the cross to give them meaning, to give them purpose where you don't have to run and chase all these things to find fulfillment because you find it in Jesus. See, Isaac wasn't perfect, but he followed the one who was, the father, God himself. Matthew 5, 16 states, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your father who is in heaven. 2 Corinthians 2, 15 and 16 states, for we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one of fragrance from death to death, to the other of fragrance from life to life. What a powerful set of verses. When I was reading this, is again, God's providence working it out. I'm going through a reading plan and it just so happens that Thursday night, this passage, as I'm preparing for this, pops up and Paul has me thinking about the aroma relating back to Isaac and some kind of aroma they saw that Isaac was with God, that he was with God and more importantly that God was with him. So you think about aromas, when you hear that word, what comes to your mind? What comes to your mind when you think about aromas? Is it like grandma baking that fresh bread? fresh cut Christmas tree. I don't know what it is for me. It's the smell of cheesesteaks. I don't know, maybe some of you, I don't know, but the aroma. Now, some of us, you know, instantly go to the good things. There's lots of aromas. And think about my nine-year-old son. That dude has the smelliest feet on planet Earth, and he comes home from school, he pops his shoes off, and he'll pop them up on the couch, and it's like, you can literally see the waves of stench coming off him, right? It's like pig pen back in the day, right? And you're like, you gotta go somewhere, man, you can't be here. Sleep out back, we got a trampoline, just go there and get a sleeping bag, you know? But that's an aroma, not an aroma that's pleasing. And Paul's talking about this here, this aroma good or bad, like, also made me think of Candace, uh, my wife, she used to be a, a manager at Bath and Body. And you can have a little chat with her about it, talk to her about it. She loves to have those little, you know, meaningless conversations. But uh, <laughs> Bath and Body manager, you know, is just doing her thing when we first got married. And, you know, we always needed extra money back then. And so uh, Christmas time was coming. And she's like, hey, we need some stock boys, you know. And so I got hired as a stock boy. And uh, I don't know if I could say this maybe, but they actually paid me in cash. So it's great, bad for Bath and Body. I don't think that's legal, but uh, I'm in Bath and Body. I'm doing the stock room, just bringing the boxes out. She got to boss me around. It was just a great thing because she bossed me around anyway, but then I got paid for it. So it was really good. So I'm in Bath and Body, but I don't know if anybody's ever been there. And you just walk in the front of that store, it just hits you in the face. Like, wow, 
The smells are all colliding right in my nose and I just can't, I'm overwhelmed. I had to go in there the other day to get some lotion for, uh, we're heading to Rwanda tomorrow, Danny and Brandon and I, and we're bringing lotion to the pastor's wives and I had to go in there and, and buy like 60 lotions and it was just hitting me left and right. So I remember thinking about those smells, but also thinking about like sometimes I would bring out a, a lotion and just be like, people actually put this on their body, this is nasty, right? So I, I looked up, I just was hitting a Google search and if you do a Google search of bad smelling lotions for Bath and Body, this one will come up, I think we have it up there, uh, Moonlight Path. <clears throat> Anybody use that because I'm about to offend you. Uh, uh, Moonlight Path. Apparently, Moonlight Path is so bad, you can look it up later, it has a Facebook page to get it removed from Bath and Body. Uh, no lies, dead serious. Moonlight Path, it's, it's bad, so uh, just don't buy it. But anyway, it's, it's this stench, not a good aroma, not like warm vanilla sugar. Give me some of that stuff, I'm good to go. I know that sounds weird, but warm vanilla sugar is where it's at. Uh, did I just say that? <clears throat> um, so anyway, moving along. Moonlight Path, just such a horrible stench. You got aromas, right? And just sometimes they're great, sometimes they're not. And when I, I thought about this passage, there's someone that came to my mind, an aroma of the gospel, an aroma of Jesus. And it was uh, my friend Todd. Todd is someone, you can see his picture. I don't know why I get overwhelmed when I talk about it in all three services. Just when you experience uh, just a conversation with him and you serve with him, this is what Paul was talking about. A man who loves God is, is a humble man and he doesn't say a lot. He actually takes a little bit to get to know because you just got to pull some stuff out of him, but he's somebody who is a servant of the king and he would fit this mold that says, this statement that says, we can tell that God is with you. Serving in Rwanda, serving in the youth ministry for over 14 years, even when he didn't have kids that age. What kind of psycho would do that, right? But he actually did that all the way back with when Shannon Sword was in youth ministry, faithfully serving. People like that only do that because they spend time with God. He would hate it for me to be up here talking about how great he is because the reality is it's because he's been with God, because God is with him and you see this lived out in his life just like these people were seeing it in Isaac. He wasn't a perfect man, obviously. Look at the first five, the, the next, the middle passage, six through 11. But they could tell that God was with him Proverbs 16, 17 says, when a man's ways please the Lord, he makes even his enemies be at peace. He looked toward the end, they come to him and they actually make a peaceful covenant. Now it benefited them because Isaac's family was growing large and they could just stomp on them, but the reality is there was peace there as he followed Christ. John 13, 34 and 35 says, a new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And author Kent Hughes finishes up with this in his commentary in the book of Genesis. He says, it is one thing to theologically affirm that God is omnipresent, but it's quite another to have it dominate and inform us day in and day out. We can say we trust God. We can say we believe he's everywhere, just like this bucket, he surrounds the bucket in the ocean. We can say all that, 
but does it dominate us? Does it change us? Before you can even know this though, you have to know Jesus. You have to know the author and finisher of the faith, trusting in him and him alone for salvation. But for those that have done that, do you believe that God is with you? And does it change the way you act? Can people clearly see and say, oh, God is with them. I've seen it firsthand. Let's pray. Dear God, we're thankful from this, for this lesson from your word, from the life of Isaac, who was not perfect, just like his father, who sinned against you, lacked trust and faith in you, but also at times was obedient. Lord, help us to learn from this, Lord. Uh, for those that are here this morning that don't know you, I pray that they will know that they can trust you now, receive you as their savior, confess their sins to you, call upon your name for salvation. For those in here that have trusted you, Lord, help us to be convicted of our need to be an aroma of Jesus, an aroma of the gospel, every interaction we have that can point people to you. Bless us as we go throughout our week to do that as well. In your name we pray, amen.